You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Welcome to this edition of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and I'm joined on today's storytelling journey by a man whose voice will probably make mine sound like Pee Wee Herman. My guest, Robert Ford, is a lead play-by-play radio broadcaster for the Houston Astros and is now entering his 12th season in that role. Robert, I'm excited to have you here on this edition of Stories from Real Life. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Robert Ford is a native of the Bronx, New York, and graduated from Syracuse University. He joined the Astros in time for their move to the American League in 2013 when they lost 111 games. In 2022, he got to announce a world championship title run for the second time and was named Texas Broadcaster of the Year by the National Sports Media Association. That's quite a roller coaster ride for you and the team. So, Robert, um, tell me how you got into broadcasting and how different it is to call games for the Houston Astros than it was for the Yakima Bears or the Kalamazoo Kings. <laughs> um, well, there are a lot more people listening, I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the short version of, the, of how I got into broadcasting, um, you know, I grew up loving sports. I think like a lot of kids grew up wanting to, to play professionally. You know, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Um, when I couldn't make the baseball team at my math and science high school in the Bronx, that's when I realized, well, maybe baseball isn't, you know, known for, maybe baseball isn't, isn't for me as a player. I mean, my high school, Bronx High School of Science has produced nine Nobel Prize winners and zero professional baseball players. Wow. So um, that, that's the most Nobel Prize winners of any high school in the world, by the way. Uh, so I wasn't going to win a Nobel wow. Prize and uh, I wasn't going to be a professional <laughs> baseball player. So I had to figure something else out. And, you know, growing up, I, I the person I watched the most sports with was, was my dad. You know, whatever was in season, whether it was baseball, whether it was basketball, whether it was football. And that, you know, that was a big way that we bonded. And in addition to watching games and, and talking about the games, we also talked a lot about the broadcasters. Um, we always knew who was broadcasting, what the games we were watching. We would talk about what we liked about different broadcasters, what we didn't like about different broadcasters. And when I was about probably about 10 or 11 years old, I remember my dad saying to me one day, uh, we were watching something and Bob Costas was on. And my dad mentioned to me that, you know, Bob Costas had gone to Syracuse. Um, and my dad said, you know, a lot of these broadcasters uh, went to Syracuse. If that's ever something you want to pursue, that might be a good college to consider. And it wasn't on my radar at all, uh, broadcasting or Syracuse or any of that. And I don't even know how my dad knew that, honestly. But he did and just kind of stuck with me. And then when I, you know, realized that that was a a route I was interested in, obviously Syracuse kind of shot to the top of the list when I started looking at colleges. Um, And fortunately, I was able to go there. But, um, you know, it kind of started without even me realizing it, just watching sports with my dad and and, and paying attention to the broadcasters and and, and what broadcasters I liked and, and what I didn't like. Um, so the education started even when I didn't realize it was going on. Um, and when I got to high school, um, and again, like I said, didn't make my high school baseball team, 
um, my sophomore year, I had a teacher, in, uh, Mrs. Goodman, she taught global studies, and she assigned us a lot of papers. And she told me, um, she said to me one day, she's like, you know, you're a really good writer. And I was like, really? Like, no one had ever said that to me. And she said, you should write for the school paper. Most oh. of the kids who write for the school paper don't know how to write, but you do. That's what she said to me. And so a light bulb went off because I knew my high school wow. newspaper covered the school sports teams. And so I figured, you know, I, I like sports. Like, that seems like that would be fun. So maybe I can cover sports for the high school newspaper. So that's what I what I did. And that got me interested in journalism. I eventually, when I started looking at colleges, broadcasting seemed more interesting to me than print. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of how I wound up uh, in the, the short version of the story anyway, which is not that short of how I, I got interested in broadcasting and wound up in broadcasting. That's interesting because I, I had a similar start. I was on the newspaper in high school. I was actually my editor in chief of the newspaper my senior year in high school, and decide couldn't decide whether or not I wanted to go into broadcasting or print. And I chose print, or you chose the other direction. And I think we probably both made good choices. You're you're great at your job. I love listening to you on the Astros broadcast. I've been a lifelong Astros fan as a Houston native, so I, I appreciate listening to you and your insights and the rapport you have with Steve Sparks, but I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit later. So when you were in the minor leagues or when you were a minor league broadcaster, um, you won an award and, and now the award is named after you from what I understand. How did, how did that come? (laughs) Yeah. So my first baseball (laughs) broadcasting job was in 2002 in Yakima, Washington in the Northwest league was short season baseball, um, 76 games in 80 days. Yakima was a, a Arizona Diamondbacks affiliate. They were not very good. As a matter of fact, they lost 22 in a row that season. Um, and 20, a 22 game losing wow. streak is tough anyway, but especially when you only play 76 games. I mean, that's a third of your season right there that are losses. Um, <laughs> and so that was my first broadcasting job. That after that season, I wound up uh, applying for and getting a job working with a radio station in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was a radio station group. Um, I initially got hired just to be the broadcaster for the minor league baseball team in Kalamazoo, the Kalamazoo Kings, which was an independent league team unaffiliated with the major leagues. They played in the Frontier League. Um, and the radio station group that hired me had the rights to their games. So I wound up doing that for two years. And in addition, initially, again, I got hired just to do baseball. But after that first season, they wound up keeping me on full time and I got to do high school and small college basketball and football and news, radio news anchoring and reporting. Um, and it wound up being a great stepping stone uh, for me in my career. Um, so, again, that, that team, Kalamazoo, was in the Frontier League. The commissioner of the Frontier League is a guy by the name of Bill Lee, who I got to know pretty well. He, you know, I'd see him. He'd come, you know, come out to games. I'd have him on the air with me. And he was early on very impressed with me largely because he was impressed with how much history of the league that I knew, even though I had never broadcast in a league before and didn't live near any of the league's teams. Um, And so we, you know, we developed a really good relationship and he told me, I mean, he had been a minor league baseball general manager at a few different places. um, And he said to me, you know, you're, you're a double a broadcaster. Like you should be broadcasting at double a, you're good enough to be a double a. Um, and you know, I was still just trying to figure out, figure this thing out, but, you know, having the commissioner of the league tell you, yeah, you're like the best broadcaster in this league that obviously gave me a lot of confidence and made me feel like, okay, I'm on the right track. 
So after my first season in Kalamazoo, 2003, I wound up being named the Frontier League Broadcaster of the Year. And then that happened again when my second and would wound up being my final year in Kalamazoo in 2004, got the award again. And I remember Bill Lee saying to me, he was like, look, as long as you're in this league, you're probably going to keep winning this award. He's like, I don't, I don't want you to keep winning this award. You need to, you need to, you know, you know, you need to be at a higher level. You deserve to be at a higher level. And so I said to him joking at the time, the frontier league, hadn't had any broadcasters uh, advance to the major leagues. They'd had several players advance to the major leagues, but no broadcasters. And so I joked with him. I said, look, if I get to the big leagues, you you better name this award after me. And it was more of a joke. Like I, you know, I, I didn't take, I didn't take it very seriously. And Bill was like, you know, deal, like whatever. And I, you know, I still keep in touch with Bill. He's, uh, he is, um, he's, he's since retired. He's the commissioner emeritus of the frontier league. And we still keep in touch um, and we've we've seen each other a handful of times since I was in that league. Um, but the way I found out that the award was named after me, so I, me and a guy by the name of Aaron Goldsmith, who was the uh, radio and TV broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners, we were the first two broadcasters from the Frontier League to get to the major league. We both started in the major leagues in 2013, Aaron with Seattle and me with the Astros. Um, and a few years after that, I got a message on Twitter from a broadcaster in the Frontier League who said, hey, I just won your award. I was named Broadcaster of the Year. And I'm like, what is he talking about? So then I go on to the Frontier League website because um, I, I think at this point it was like right at near the end of the season when they had named all their award winners for Most Valuable Player and, you know, all those things. and. Broadcaster of the Year is one of the awards. So I looked, and sure enough, there it was, the, the Robert Ford Award for the Frontier League Broadcaster of the Year. Um, and I think, nice. I, think nice. I texted I texted Bill <laughs> not too long after that. I was like, you know, I was joking about, you know, you naming the award after me, but I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's it's kind of cool. It's better to have an award named after you than, I mean, there are a lot of other things that you could that could be named after you that would be a lot worse than an award. So I'll, I'll take it. Absolutely. That's, that's a pretty nice honor. <laughs> but one of the things that I appreciate you while listening to you on the radio is your precise grammar. And you mentioned having been a, a, a writer in your high school newspaper. And I've been called a, a grammar nerd myself. You've probably been called out at some point, I'm sure. But when you say things like fewer than rather than less than, <laughs> I have to smile to myself. <laughs> Those little, just little things like that, I, I really appreciate. So what kind of student were you in your English classes? Um, in general, I mean, I was a decent student. I was never as good of a student as I probably could have been in general. Um, school came easy to me. Um, you know, I, I've always been a good test taker. Um, and then as I got older and, and you know, we're, we're in high school and college, and you kind of figure out, you know, how certain classes work. Like, okay, if I just take, if I just pay attention and take notes in this class and I'll be fine. I was never a kid who had to, who had to study a ton. Like people would talk about pulling all nighters to study. I never, I never did that. Like, I don't know. And that's not me bragging. It's just, that's just not something I've ever, I ever had to do. Um, my mom was a school teacher. She taught fourth grade and then was a guidance counselor. Um, and worked at the same public elementary school in the Bronx for 33 years. And my mom was the sort of student 
who wasn't, who really loved school, who wasn't maybe as naturally gifted as some other students, but my mom was just a hard worker and, you know, just, just really loved school and, and, and was very, a very diligent student. So my mom, it would frustrate her because she saw me, you know, Hey, here's someone, my son who, you know, has a chance to be an even better student than I ever was because he just picks up things at a rate that, you know, I didn't as a kid. And so that was always a constant source of frustration between my mom and me, because my mom always felt like I should be doing more. Um, whereas I was like, well, this seems like this, this is fine. Um, so, and again, I wasn't a bad student. My, my mother wouldn't have let me be a bad student. I wasn't a bad student, but I wasn't a great student. I was a, a B plus student in high school. Um, I was a sort of student though, where if I was really interested in the subject matter, then I would really, I would focus more and really dive into it. And English was one of those classes um, where, you know, I certainly had a lot of interest in, especially when I got into my junior and senior year of high school, when my English classes were, since I was on like kind of a journalism track, my English classes were more, you know, related to journalism. That was something that was interesting to me. Um, same thing with, with history. You know, I was always, I've always been fascinated by history. Um, and so like, I always, you know, those are the sort of classes that I always really excelled in or excelled in the most because I was always more focused and more engaged. Um, and so I think that's also too, like, I kind of knew as a kid, like when I started looking at, you know, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to study in college? I already knew myself well enough to know that I couldn't be in a career that I wasn't passionate about because I would just check out and I wouldn't be good at it. And I, I knew that like innately. And so I think that's just one of the reasons why, you know, I pursued something like broadcasting that I was very interested in because I knew this is something I could really sink my teeth into. This is something I would give a hundred percent at, um, as opposed to like, you know, like accounting and nothing wrong with being an accounting. And I may have been a good accountant, but like I would have hated it and probably, you know, I would have checked out and it wouldn't have been as, as interesting to me and I would have lost focus really quickly. So, um, yeah, that, that was in a nutshell, like kind of how the sort of, the sort of student I was and kind of how that led me to the career that I've had, because I knew, you know, I needed to be in something that, that was really going to engage me and interest me and, and fascinate me because otherwise I would, I would be incredibly bored. All right. So when you were a kid, you, you watched a lot of baseball games with your dad, as you mentioned, and at one time envisioned playing until you got to high school and, and, and sort of killed your, your dream. But when you were imagining yourself as a kid playing in the major leagues, did you imagine yourself? I, I believe you were a Mets fan. Is that correct? Yeah, I grew up a Mets fan. Uh, all right. Okay. Did you imagine yourself playing in Shea Stadium second base or whatever your favorite uh, position was, or did you sort of imagine yourself eventually being a broadcaster? I definitely didn't imagine myself for being the a broad, broadcaster as a kid. Um, yeah, no, of course. I mean, I imagine being a baseball player. I mean, there, I grew up across the street from a park um, in the Bronx, St. James Park, right across the street from where I grew up. And so, I, I mean, I'd go, I, you know, in the summers, on the weekends, I'd be there all day um, playing baseball, you know, if there were no kids playing, 
there was a rec center on the edge of the park that had a red brick wall or it was paint. It was a brick wall that was painted red and it had a white strip in the middle of the wall that ran that ran uh, vertically down the wall. So that was the width of a strike zone. So I would I would just pitch to that, you know, and I would be imitating. I mean, I'm usually Mets pitchers, but, you know, I'd have the high leg kick of Dwight Gooden or I'd have like the leg kick like David Cohn or, you know, things like that. Or, you know, I was a big even though. He, he wasn't on the Mets when I was a kid. Um, I was a big I was a big Nolan Ryan fan as a kid, and so I would try and imitate his motion. I remember he wrote a book about pitching, and that I that I checked out of the library. And I mean I I mean I I poured over that thing, and, you know, tried to copy his motion. I didn't it didn't get me throwing ninety miles an hour. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, I imagine sure that I would be playing for the New York Mets at Shea Stadium. Um, you know, I, you know, Dallas Strawberry was my favorite player. I didn't necessarily imagine being him because he was left-handed and, you know, he was, it was just kind of a different sort of skill set than like what I envisioned myself having. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was just more about, you know, I just love playing and I just wanted to keep playing for as long as I could. And, you know, hopefully, you know, that would lead to me playing professionally. And again, when, you know, I realized eventually that that wasn't going to happen, but yeah, I mean, I you know, I thought maybe Davey Johnson, the Mets manager when I was a kid, might be driving by St. James Park, and who knows, he might spot me. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you just, you just, you just never know. You always, you always got to be ready. <laughs> I actually had, I don't know if the name Bill Wood means anything to you, but he was sure. the Astros general manager um, in 1988, and I, I had an internship with the Astros that year and worked with Rob Madwick, who you probably have met sure. along the way, who's now with the Texas Rangers. And I, I met Mr. Wood, and I, I had just graduated from college that spring. And I said, just so you know, I, I can play center field. So <laughs> in case you need anybody to play, I'm, I'm always ready. Of course, they didn't have any need for a, a writer to play center field. So <laughs> that sort of went up in smoke. <laughs> so when you came to the Astros, did you know the stadium public address announcer was named Bob Ford? No, but I found out really quickly. Uh, after I got the job, uh, cause you know, a bunch of people tweeted me about it and what have you. And then I looked it up and saw, oh, wow, this is, I mean, what a coincidence. And it's funny. I remember the first time I met Bob Ford, um, it was on opening day of my first year in 2013 and he came to the booth, you know, Bob Ford is anyone who's ever been to Minute Maid Park is just as great, just booming voice. And, and it's, and it's how he sounds just in conversation too. It's not an act. Um, and yeah, he came into the booth. He was like... Robert Ford, Bob Ford. And I'm like, you know what? This introduction went exactly as I kind of expected it would go. This has been great. And I mean, and, you know, it's, and it's funny. We get, we get confused for each other. It happens less often now than it probably did maybe in my first couple of years. But like Bob even told me when I got the Astros job, he had people contact him. Hey, congratulations. I had no idea you were interested in play-by-play. And Bob's like, it's not me. It's not, it's a different, it's a different Robert Ford. Um, but like, I, uh, I've gotten emails that have been meant for him. There have been times when people have reached out to the booth, like, Hey, uh, someone said that this so-and-so said they left you tickets and they're having problem accessing their tickets. I'm like, I don't, I said, that's probably Bob Ford. That's, I don't know who that is. Uh, I, I once actually, my favorite story with us getting mixed up, uh, I got an email, this was a few years ago. I got an email from a producer for NPR in Houston for national public radio in Houston. who was like, yeah, I'd love to do a story about you and like come to the booth and interview you and like, just kind of watch you work for, 
for maybe a little while. I was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. This day would be great. We could, you know, exchange a few emails. Um, you know, yeah, this day would be great. I talked to, uh, you know, Steve Sparks and I think Matt, Matt Bolch was our producer engineer at the time. I said, Hey, this guy from NPR radio is going to come by, excuse me. And he wants to do, you know, he wants to talk to me and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. He can stay in the booth for a little while. Um, and so the appointed day comes and, you know, I'd kind of forgot about it. And then like middle of the game, I'm thinking, man, that guy never, never showed up. Oh, that's weird. But I, I you know, I didn't think much of it. <laughs> and then, um, the next day I get an email from that NPR producer and he's like, thank you so much. Had a great visit with you, blah, 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 blah. And Bob Ford is from uh, Galveston. He's from Galveston Island. And, uh, and the, the, the producer said, you know, I, I'll definitely look you up the next time I'm in Galveston. And I just started laughing. And so then the next time I saw, <laughs> the next time I saw Bob Ford, I went up to him. I said, Hey, you had a producer from NPR come and uh, talk to you. He's like, yeah, he was, you know, yeah, he came by. I said, yeah, I set that up for you um, without even realizing. It. <laughs> and so we, we had, we had a pretty good chuckle about that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's funny. Um, just one of those weird coincidences. I've had people ask me like, am I doing the PA while I'm broadcasting on the radio? Like stuff like that. It's, it's pretty funny, but, uh, and it's even, it's even more, you know, the fact that Bob is just such a great guy in addition to being a great uh, PA announcer, just makes it just makes it that much more entertaining to me. Yeah, I've actually known, not personally, but I've known of Bob being a Houston native when he was on the radio before he became the PA announcer. Um, J. Fred Duckett had been the the announcer forever, right. and then um, then Bob took over from him after being on the the local rock radio station. So I remember I've heard his voice a lot over the years. And I and I appreciate his voice too. So let's talk about another Robert Ford for a second. Your your dad, um, Robert Ford, who was a staff writer at Billboard magazine and one of the leading behind the scenes forces in the early days of hip hop music. So I understand he wrote the lyrics for the early hip hop holiday hit called Christmas Rappin'. You give me all that jive about things you wrote before eyes alive. Cause this ain't 1823, ain't even. Can you tell us about that story? Well, yes, I can. Um, so yeah, my dad, like you said, uh, also Robert Ford. He's Robert Ford Jr. I'm actually Robert Ford the third. Um, and uh yeah, he was a writer for for Billboard magazine. Um, you know, he 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 started off at Billboard in uh, um behind the scenes and in production. Uh, which he, he had had a similar role, role with Forbes magazine before that in the early 70s. And he comes over to Billboard and he was in production. But at the time, Billboard did not have uh, very many, if any, um, uh, black people reviewing music acts. And my dad would always say, I started reviewing music acts for Billboard because white people were scared to go to the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Like, that's how my dad would put it. And, you, you know, Apollo Theater, world famous theater, wow. 125th Street, Harlem. I mean, it's, you know, it's a who's who of legendary acts that have performed there. I mean, obviously, mostly, you know, R&B and stuff. But I mean, even not R&B, um, lots of different genres and not just black artists, too. Um, but yeah, my dad became a music reviewer for Billboard and was going to see shows, you know, multiple nights a week and. Um, reviewing acts and, and writing about it for Billboard, and he did a lot of um, uh, a lot of disco. 
He covered a lot of disco acts. I mean, my dad spent time at Studio 54, like in a, an actual like working capacity of like most of the people who were there. Uh, and, you know, you know, so he, he was really in on the disco scene. And my dad used to always talk about how he felt like hip hop was almost an outgrowth of disco in some ways, kind of indirectly, because in many ways it was kind of a response to a lot of uh, kids in the inner cities dissatisfaction with the product that was being put out by disco. So they would come up with their own stuff. So my dad wrote uh, the first article ever about hip hop in a mainstream publication talking about uh, these DJs were going to these record stores and asking for these obscure records with long instrumental breaks um, because they were using them because they were rapping over them. They were talking over them. And so they wanted, you know, like Apache by the Incredible Bongo Band is a great example. Uh, you know, it was an obscure record wow. that came out in the early 70s of, you know, guys playing the bongos, but had a great, you know, it was it's an instrumental and has a great beat. And so DJs were, were picking that up and, and rapping over it uh, because they, you know, were in some ways dissatisfied with what was happening in disco. Um, and also, too, a lot of the disco stuff was a bit inaccessible to p some people in the inner city, you know, because disco, I mean, you think about disco, a lot of it was about the look, right? The clothes, the hair, you know, the all of that. And I mean, if you're a, a poor kid in the Bronx, you know, you're not, that's not necessarily going to be accessible to you if you, you don't, you know, you don't have the money to buy those clothes. And also too, disco was more of a, you know, it was a 21 and up thing. So if you're 16, 17, 18, you're, you're not going to be able to go to, to disco clubs there. You, you know, now you're not going to be able to get in, um, not even studio 54, but even like lesser known disco discos, you're not gonna be able to get in. So it was kind of like the youth was like, well, we're going to do our own thing. Um, and that's kind of how rap music started. And so my dad was there at the ground floor. Um, he wound up getting laid off by billboard in the late seventies, right around the time my mom was pregnant with me. Um, and my dad had already kind of had his eye on maybe trying to get into music production. Um, and he wound up getting connected with Russell Simmons, who at the time was a club promoter, basically had a few acts that he promoted and my dad with his connections, you know, told him, Hey, I can, I can probably get you a record deal. Um, you know, we can make a rap record. And they chose Curtis Blow as the rapper. That was one of the, the rappers that, that Russell Simmons worked with, um, and promoted and they wound up choosing him. And it was my dad's idea for their first record. Cause originally it was just for one song, the deal. And if things worked out, then it could become for an album or multiple songs. Um, and it was with Mercury Records. Curtis Blow became the first rapper to sign with a major label because of my dad. And my dad wanted it the first thought the first record should be a Christmas record because if you were going to get one shot, want to make this work. And the reason my dad came up with that idea is because one of his mentors at Billboard was this guy by the name of Mickey Addy, who was this older gentleman who back in the day in the 30s and 40s. Tin Pan Alley and, you know, near Times Square, that was a big songwriting mecca. Like if you think about a lot of the the, the standards, you know, were written on Tin Pan Alley. Take Me Out to the Ball Game was a song that was written on, on Tin Pan Alley, which a lot of people don't realize back in, you okay. know, the in like the wow. 19 teens. Um, 
So Mickey Addy had worked on Tin Pan Alley, had written a lot of songs, and he had written a Christmas song that Perry Como had sung. And he would get royalties every year after Christmas because of this this song he wrote uh, that Perry Como sang. And so, like, my dad, a light bulb kind of went off in my dad's head, like, well, so if you write a Christmas record, every year they're going to play this song around Christmas. So that means every year that's money in your pocket as a songwriter. So came up with the idea of a Christmas record. My dad actually did not write Christmas rapping, even though he has a writing credit. Um, but it was his <laughs> idea, which is why he has the writing credit. A good chunk of Christmas rapping, the first the entire first verse was written, written by... Uh, a guy by the name of J.B. Moore, who my dad had worked with at Billboard um, and was good friends with. And J.B. Moore had left Billboard around the same time my dad did because he wanted to write a novel. I still don't know if J.B. Moore has written this novel, but he and my dad wanted to becoming production partners. And it started with Curtis Blow and Christmas Rappin'. And what's funny about it to me is so J.B. Moore writes the first verse of Christmas Rappin', one of the first commercially successful hip hop songs. J.B. Moore is maybe the waspiest person on the planet. He grew up on Long, <laughs> he grew up on Long Island. Um, you know, he, get, he came from a well-off family. He took my dad sailing once because his family would go sailing. Um, my dad grew up in St. Albans, Green, Queens. He was not going sailing. Um, but like, yeah, this, this, this waspy guy from the Long Island suburbs wrote a good chunk of one of the most iconic uh, songs in, in hip-hop history, which I always... I always think is amusing and just kind of goes to show you that, you know, you never know where, where inspiration and innovation is going to come from. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a great story. So when you were growing up, um, you would sometimes do your homework in your dad's office while he was chatting with the beastie boys during their recording sessions for license to ill. What, yeah. what was that like around the, around the office? So my dad, you know, he was in music production, you know, work with Curtis Blow. Um, for a while and then was doing some music production stuff on his own and was also working for Russell Simmons. Um, after Russell Simmons had started the Def Jam Records label, my dad worked for um, his artist management company, Rush Artist Management. Um, and Rush and Def Jam, had they shared an office at the time uh, in lower Manhattan down, um, uh, down in Soho, uh, which was not nearly as, as chic and trendy as it is now back in the, the mid to late 1980s. Uh, but that's where their offices were. And so, yeah, my dad would pick me up uh, from school. You know, my parents weren't together. My, I usually have my dad, my dad usually had me on the weekends. So he'd pick me up on Friday, um, you know, from second grade, third grade, take the subway down to the, you know, Def Jam's offices. And my dad had his own office there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, as a youngster, you know, six, seven, eight years old. I really wasn't, I didn't really pay much attention to music. I didn't, I wasn't someone who was like plugged in to that sort of stuff. It just wasn't one of my interests at that time. Um, so I had no idea who these people were. Um, but yeah, like the Beastie Boys would be in my dad's office. LL Cool J, Run DMC. I do remember distinctly meeting Daryl McDaniels because I remember him asking me what grade I was in and uh, what classes I liked and telling me to stay in school. I do distinctly remember that. Um, and this was after, I don't think, I mean, I may have been around the Beastie Boys while they were recording License to Ill, but I know definitely after License to Ill came out, because it was a big hit, then they were touring with Madonna, uh, they were opening for Madonna after that album came out, 
And I know definitely around that time, that's when um, I was around them and they were in my dad's office. Um, but yeah, my dad, you know, his artist management was my dad's main focus. And that's what Russell Simmons had brought him in there to do, to basically give artists advice on their careers or what they could do to move their career forward. Like one thing my dad, uh, one and one example of this is, so LL Cool J, you know, was, was one of the big rappers for Def Jam at the time. And he was a teenager. I mean, he was 16, 17 years old. Um, and it had, you know, a couple of albums. And LL Cool J, if you ever saw pictures of him as a teenager, I mean, he was a beanpole. I mean, he was, he was just, <laughs> he was really skinny. And my dad told him, you know, you're supposed to be like this um, heartthrob. You need to, you need to gain weight. Like you need to hit the gym. You need to work out. You need to be buff. And I mean, look at LL Cool J now. And I'm not going to say that's only because my dad told him to do that. But uh, that just gives you an idea of the sort of advice and the sort of counsel that my dad was asked to provide to these artists, you know, that Russell Simmons was working with at, at Def Jam. That's that's pretty incredible. That's another great story. I, I got to tell my wife about that. She's a, a longtime LL Cool J fan, so I got to hey, tell her about hey, that story. Hey, hey lady, ladies love Cool James, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> So did you ever envision yourself as a rap or hip hop artist yourself? Never. Um, it was never something I was interested in. Um, I, even as I got older and really got into music and, and was listening to a lot of different music and, you know, would talk a lot about music with my dad. I never really was interested in, in rapping. Uh, it was never something I even really even thought to try. Uh, I do kind of wish that I had learned how to play a musical instrument when I was younger. Um, I don't know how to play a musical instrument. I don't know how to read music. And same with my dad, actually. My dad d d never learned how to read music, never played a, a musical instrument. Um, but yeah, I kind of wish I had learned to play an instrument. Um, but I, I didn't. And I mean, it's fine. I mean, things have worked out okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was just someone who was really interested in music and loved listening to music and loved different genres and learning. Again, I love history. So learning about the history of music and especially when you think about hip hop, uh, so much of it is so much of it is samples. And like, that's one of my favorite things to this day is seeing what old songs are being sampled or what songs that like now it's like songs mm -hmm. I grew up with that are now being sampled. Like, you know, I just love the way music history in hip hop, it's more obvious, but it happens in every genre to a certain extent. So, you know, who else doesn't know how to read music? Paul McCartney. Well, so you can... That worked, that worked out okay for for, for Sir Paul. <laughs> of course, he could play lots of instruments, so yeah. there's that. <laughs> All right, so you, let's talk about your broadcast partner, Steve Sparks. I could imagine him trying to be a rapper. <laughs> Has he ever tried to do anything like that around you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Sparky is one of a kind. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, this that we, we've partnered together and that, that this has worked out as well as it has. Is he the same off air as he is on air? Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, when I got hired by the Astros, Sparks got hired at the same time, um, and we were—they uh, brought us all in. I mean, I was the only one. Well, me, me, and Jeff Blum—we were both new. We were the only ones who didn't live in Houston at the time. They had to fly us in to be introduced as the new broadcasters for the Astros because. Going into the 2013 season, the Astros made a lot of changes regarding the broadcast. Milo Hamilton retired, which is more or less who I replaced. They made a bunch of other moves. 
Um, and so they brought a bunch of us in to, you know, meet the media and be introduced to say, these are your Astros radio and TV broadcasters for 2013. And five minutes, no more than five minutes before we were going to go to the media room at Minute Maid Park to be introduced is when I first met Steve Sparks. And the first time I'd ever talked with him, communicated with him, we, I mean, we didn't know each other at all. Um, and a lot of times that's how these kind of broadcast marriages happen, right? Like, it's not like you get to choose your partner or have much say or anything like that. It's a lot of times it's so, okay, you're going to be working with this person and that's just the way it is. Um, and so I don't think anyone could have envisioned that it would have worked out as well as it has, uh, because I think we complement each other so well. I think the fact that, first of all, we both love baseball. We both, you know, and I've talked about this with, with, with Steve before. If Steve Sparks, if you had never heard of his name, if he had never played in the big leagues, had never played professionally, he would still be a massive baseball fan. He would still be paying attention and watching as many games as he could. Uh, so I think that's, and that's not true for everybody who played baseball, which a lot of people don't realize. Not everybody who played baseball loves baseball. A lot of times people play baseball because they're good at it. Kind of the same reason why a lot of people wind up in careers that they don't like. It's because they're good at it. So they, they just keep doing it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that sets Steve apart is that he loves baseball. The fact that he played and has insight is just, you know, just icing on the cake. Um, so we both love baseball. He can be, you know, a little goofy and a little silly. And so can I. But Steve, more, way more so than me. But I have no problem with him doing that. And I have no problem with being his, like, kind of straight man, if you will, uh, when he, you know, when he's goofy. But one of the things I love about about Sparks is that you know, and our broadcasts together is that we can be goofy, we can be silly, we can make each other laugh. But when there's something important going on on the field, like we're going to tell you about it, and you're going to know what's happening, and you're gonna we're going to convey it to you as best as we can. We, I, I, I always put it this way: we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take what we do very seriously. Um, and I think that's a big reason why uh, our partnership has worked out so well. Awesome. All right. So when you were hired by the Astros in 2013, you became only the fourth black play-by-play announcer in the history of Major League Baseball, from what I understand. Have you ever felt any unique pressure being one of the few black play-by-play announcers in the league? I mean, only when someone asked me about it. Um, not not really. Because, I mean, I, I, I didn't get into this because I wanted to be a trailblazer. I mean, I knew the numbers were low in terms of the number of people who look like me, who grew up where I did, who were calling baseball games at any level. Um, but that was never my focus. I, I got into this because I love baseball. I love play-by-play. I love sports, and I wanted to to broadcast sports. That's that's solely the reason I got into this. Um, and baseball has always been my favorite sport, so that's always kind of driven the various moves that I've made. Um, so, yeah, I was willing – to do whatever I needed to do to get better and to progress, you know, even if that meant going to Yakima, Washington and Kalamazoo, Michigan and Binghamton, New York. Um, I was just focused on doing this for as long as I could and hopefully getting to the big leagues. And, uh, you know, that was, that was really all it was about for me. But by the same token, I do understand the position that I'm in 
and the platform that I have, the, you know, we all have a platform when you do this for a living. For some of us, it's bigger. Some of us, it's smaller. Some choose to use it. Some choose not to. Some choose to pick their spots. But we all have some sort of platform, especially now with social media. Um, and, you know, I understand that as one of the few black play-by-play -play broadcasters ever in baseball, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I'm going to get asked questions that other broadcasters are going to be at, that other broadcasters are not going to be asked. Other broadcasters aren't asked about what do you feel about the diversity efforts in Major League Baseball? No, no, no other, you know, white broadcasters are not asked that. And I think it's almost like a, a gift and a curse because on the one hand, it's like, well, why do I always have to answer these questions? But on the other hand, it's like, well, I get it because I'm one of the few black people doing this. Uh, so my voice, you know, when added to these topics is going to carry more weight than somebody else's voice. So I do understand that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I am a believer in more diversity in sports and here's how I look at it. And I've, I've told other people this, cause you know, like you think about the whole thing with the Kansas city chiefs and Travis Kelsey, and he's dating Taylor Swift and they keep showing Taylor Swift when she's at the games. And a lot of diehard football fans are like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are they showing this woman on TV? We don't care. Blah, 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 blah. But I've told people, like, if you love the NFL, if you love the Chiefs, you should be happy that this is happening because this is getting more people interested in the sport that you love. And yes. for our sports to continue to be as popular and as prevalent and as important as they are, you know, you want as many people as possible watching and listening and, and caring about your sport, but it doesn't, I mean, we all come to the, we all become sports fans for different reasons. We come, you know, everybody's path is a little different. Um, so some people, you know, are going to become NFL fans now because of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And now will some of them, will a lot of them drop off after, you know, if they break up or, once this stops being such a, such a novelty, yeah, sure. But there are going to be a few who are going to stick with it. Um, and so that's always my argument when I talk about diversity, the importance of diversity in baseball, um, specifically since that's the sport I love the most and the sport I, I do the work, most work in, is the more diversity there is in baseball on the field, off the field, in the broadcast booth, in the stands, that is more people who are going to get into this great game and who are going to care about this great game. And that means more, you know, that means better television ratings. That means, uh, you know, more interest. That means, uh, you know, the world series still being a, a prominent thing um, because, you know, you can't survive just on a small segment of people caring about your game. You want as many, you want as you want your game to be as diverse as possible uh, to prevent it from becoming a niche sport. Um, I think that's so important. And I think, and, you know, to me, it's not even a political thing. It, at least it shouldn't be, because to me, it's all about, if you love this game, you should care about this. Uh, you know, regardless of how you vote, diversity should matter to you because that's keeping your sport relevant and your sport important and your sport getting a seat at the table and in some cases being at the head of the table. Maybe it takes Taylor Swift. Maybe it takes more diversity in broadcasting. 
maybe it takes more diversity in the front office and in the manager's chairs and on the field and having players from all over the world. I mean, think about how many people love baseball who, you know, from Japan, who pay attention to Major League Baseball from Japan because of all the great Japanese ballplayers who have come here. That's a whole new avenue that opened up to Major League Baseball like 30 years ago. And that's that's huge. Um, so I think I think that stuff is extremely important. Um, and yeah, I, I want there to be, you know, a lot more people who look like me and a lot more people who look like, you know, you know, whether it's women, whether it's Asians, whether, you know, more Latinos. I mean, I think when you talk about it in terms of a broadcasting context, I think it's it's so important because especially when you're a person of color and you're in a group that's not as well represented, when you see people who look like you doing something, you're more likely to think, okay, I have, you know, this is, you know, I belong here. This is someone who I can relate to. That's so important. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And this is my last question, or this is my one question really about the Astros for 2024. So the Astros are going into the 2024 season following the retirements of Dusty Baker and Michael Brantley and the free agency of Martin Maldonado. Uh, where do you see the leadership coming from in this year's team? Well, I think whenever you're a really good team, it's never you never have one leader. I mean, the Astros haven't had the success they've had because of one voice in the clubhouse. It's always multiple voices. You always lose something like, you know, obviously losing – Michael Brantley's presence is going to be a factor. You know, Dusty Baker not being there, that's going to have an effect. But I think it can still be good, just different. Um, but I think you have guys like Jose Altuve, who's a very quiet leader, leads by example. But he's one of those people, when he speaks, people listen. Because he doesn't do it all that often. So when he does, people pay attention. Or, uh, you know, even Alex Bregman is someone who, who leads by example. You know, I started to notice last year as the season went on, um, Jose Abreu, um, I mean, he's a guy who has a ton of respect in this game. Um, I think more than the average fan realizes. And I noticed a few things in the latter part of last year with Jose Abreu showing some leadership uh, with, with guys. So I think, you know, in order to be a good team, it's never about one leader. It's never about one person. Um, I think this is a team that, you know, still has a lot of good leadership, still has a lot of people who are very professional who take the, this job very seriously um, and who are really hungry to continue to win. All right. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the baseball season. I'm, I'm a baseball fan first, football fan second. So I'm excited about the Texans, but I'm still anxious and, and ready for baseball to start. When pitchers and catchers report, that's like a, that's when the new year starts for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, I haven't even mentioned that you're you do some play by play basketball um, broadcasting for ESPN. So how how is that different in pre preparing than it is for a baseball game? Well, baseball's always been my favorite sport to broadcast. Basketball's uh, uh, has been second, a close second. Um, but I, I love broadcasting basketball. I broadcasted college basketball and high school basketball at a bunch of different levels on the radio for about ten years before I ever came to Houston. I mean, everything from division three basketball to, um, division two, I used to do, um, division two men's and women's basketball, double headers. I'd call the women, the women would play first. Oh. Then you'd have 30 minutes between games and the men would play. And I would do both games. I did that for a couple of different schools at the division two level. And, um, yeah, I've, I've and you know, called division one basketball on the radio as well. Um, and I I've known for a long time, 
that, you know, kind of my dream job would be to be the radio voice for a major league baseball team and do college basketball play-by-play on TV. Um, unfortunately, I've been able to, to realize that over the last few years. Um, it's been great working with ESPN. You, I usually wind up with about, you know, 10 or 12 games. I'd like to do more, but it's actually a pretty, pretty good number. Um, and it is a different skill set in a lot of ways because when with basketball, there's always a clock. So even if it's a slog of a game, it's still moving. So it's not like baseball where if you have a slog of a game, things, I mean, now they have the pitch timer, but even still, it'll slow down. Uh, that doesn't happen in basketball the same way. Also, too, since it's on TV, that's more of an analyst-driven medium. Radio is more of a, a play-by-play person's driven media, uh, play-by-play driven medium. So on TV, you know, I, I, I mean, and yeah, I do this on radio, too. I want my analyst to shine. It's even more so on TV because this is really their medium and people can see what's happening. So I want to be able to just kind of fill in the gaps and provide some captions and let the analyst really break things down for people um, since they can already see, you know, what's going on on the court. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love it. Um, I love doing college basketball. I've, you know, I have uh, the last few years, ESPN's had me doing a lot of games in the Ohio Valley Conference um, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, Murray State was in the conference, uh, but like Moorhead State, and, uh, U- University of Tennessee Martin, and uh, Tennessee Tech. And, you know, there's actually a lot of really good basketball. I I usually wind up getting a handful of games in the SWAC as well. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a game, I have a couple of games coming up at Jackson State, um, a SWAC school that their head coach, their head basketball coach is uh, Mo Williams, of course, the you know, former NBA guard. Um, and I got to do some of, I got to do one of their games last year as well. Um, so yeah, I usually wind up getting to do a few SWAT games. I've done some games up at Prairie View, which people in Houston know is not very far. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a nice little, little, uh, little hobby side hustle, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a way to, you know, keep engaged and to do something a little more fun and a little different and, you know, still interesting. Uh, during the baseball off season. That's awesome. That's, that's good to hear. I'm glad you're really enjoying it too. So our guest today was Houston Astros radio broadcaster, Robert Ford, and also ESPN broadcaster. So Robert, thanks for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it for today's episode of stories from real life. Join us again next time for another great storytelling journey. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.